0: This is
1: the WellFounder podcast. All right. Welcome to the show, Charlie. It's a pleasure having you on.
2: Good morning, Charlie. Thank you. It's good to be on.
1: Yeah, I am glad to. I'm excited to have you on today because like I was telling you, you're one of the few uh, founders from the UK I speak to, most of my founders or most of my guests are from America for some reason, (laughs) but uh, yeah, it's good to have a fellow UK person in here. And uh, today we're going to be talking about your company, which is Culture15, which is a very interesting uh, name, which we're going to talk about in a bit, but before we get started, could you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and about the work you do?
2: Yeah, happy to. Um, I like to say I'm on my sixth career,
1: hmm.
2: um, which I think is is conservatively counting. So I've had quite a, a varied background. Um, I've been running my own consulting organization for the last 10 years. So not a tech startup, but it's important in the Foundation Culture 15. Um, I spent time as a consultant. Uh, I spent time working in a large international corporate, General Electric, American company. Uh, i spent uh, 11 years in the military so i've got really quite a varied background wow um which all sort of forms to uh to bring me to where i am now so but it's relevant um i currently put most of my time into culture 15 which is a tech startup that we'll talk about in a second um but i'm still involved to some degree in the consulting business which is highly relevant in terms of answering some of the questions around what culture 15 does why it does it why there's an opportunity um i live in london i uh, got three grown up children a dog uh, and and about 60000 bees which has been a lockdown project of mine i've taken up <laughs> beekeeping um and uh yeah and i like to do more adventurous things in my spare time but we can talk about that maybe later
1: that is so cool, but I wasn't expecting that. You've got such a wide, wide background there, including beekeeping. Are you allowed to keep <laughs> bees in, uh, in London, or how do you how do you control them? Because I watch some of the beekeeping videos on YouTube. There's a particular lady I follow, and she uses smoke to control them and all that. How does yeah, that work? You,
2: yeah. yeah, the smoke helps to keep their heads down and oh. uh, stop them thinking about uh, attacking you. Oh. Sure, but uh, actually, you, firstly, you can't control them. Yeah. They're, they're wild animals and they do their thing. You can only give them a the house and hope they stay. Mm. Um, but actually, there, there are beehives on the roofs of a lot of the, the office buildings in the middle of the build, most built-up areas in London. They they are very effective at uh, finding flowers uh, and surviving in all sorts of areas. We live in a in a slightly outside the centre, so we've got a lot of gardens nearby and a park. So uh, the bees are very seem to be very happy and multiplying like crazy.
1: That's so cool man. I love it. It must be very um relaxing doing that, especially after you've done all the startup things <laughs> and then you go 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 over to handle your bees. That's such a good way to take your mind off things. I would I would yeah. think, yeah.
2: You're absolutely right. Startup therapy. <laughs> uh, I I completely agree. It is very connecting. Um they're very discerning. They keep you honest. So if mm. you're in a bad mood or you're a bit rough with them, they let you know. They get they can get pretty pissed off. Hmm. um but no it's it is very calming and i like it for exactly that it's uh it take, you have to concentrate and it's uh uh it's very soothing it's therapy yeah for exactly I Can
1: imagine i can imagine one more question a final question on the bees yeah. how and why <laughs> why did you get into bees?
2: <laughs> <laughs> i i i'm on a lifelong search for personal growth And Mm. so I, uh, firstly, I love the nature part of it, but also I'm inspired by other people. I'm constantly seeing what other people are doing Mm. um, and I'm interested in it because I never actually think I figured it out. Uh, I've had a couple of friends who've taken it up and I got really interested and inspired and I thought I'd give it a go. And I've I've been hooked ever since. So it was a bit of a lockdown project. Uh, Over the first winter of 2020, I did an online course And it just sort of snowballed from there. I, I just sort of got deeper and deeper into it. Got my first queen and my first six frames of bees, uh, April last year. And up until a few weeks ago, I had four colonies and four hives in my garden and, and way more bees than I wanted. So, uh,
1: yeah it quickly got out of control <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool man that so cool. It, it, maybe we'll bring you back on to chat some more about the bees we'll make a bee no. <laughs> episodes for that because i've got so many so many questions about that like the honey do you get all the honey you want <laughs> honey candles
2: uh lip balm wow. so yeah yeah it's a little cottage industry but i'm People are saying, you're going to start a business. No, no, I have enough businesses at the moment. I, I don't need more businesses.
1: <laughs> oh, Lord. that's so cool. All right, let's talk about Culture15. Yeah, It's a very cool name. I love it. Tell us, give us a brief overview of what you do and the problem you solve, basically.
2: Culture15 is a tech platform, and it provides organizations, primarily businesses, but not solely, with a framework to measure and track their culture. Hmm. It's that simple. Um, yeah. It is a culture measurement tool. Hmm.
1: Culture measurement? Do you mean like the culture of the company, like uh, how they operate yeah. and stuff like that?
2: Yeah. That the, as I mentioned in my intro, I've been running a consulting business for the last ten years, specialising in leadership and culture. Okay. And we came constantly to organisations that knew and recognised that how people behaved how information flowed around the organization, how teams interacted and collaborated, what we call culture was critical to their success. Mm. And it was strongly recognized that these were a large proportion of the value of the organization was tied up in behaviors, but they lacked any ability to manage it directly. Mm. So it became very anecdotal, very subjective, um, and it wasn't managed in a traditional way. If you look at organizations, how they're managed with financials, there are recognized frameworks. You can look at a balance sheet or a PL statement or a cash flow forecast. Um, and everybody understands the same thing, and, and therefore it is managed across the organization in a very thorough and very efficient way. Um, it's my belief that culture should be on a similar setting. So, therefore, it needs a framework, a measurement platform. Uh, and a set of ways of thinking about culture, which is comparable to the way you think about the financial health of the organization. And that was a massive gap. And time and time again, we saw organizations having a need, but having no answer to it. Mm. So they, they sort of lapsed into measuring engagement and happiness and the softer aspects of, uh, really an outcome of culture, but, but it was an itch that most organizations couldn't scratch because they didn't mm. have a framework for it. So. Um, About five years ago, we started developing our own version of that.
0: Mm.
2: And about three years ago, I realized that the opportunity for this was enormous because all organizations in some way had a need and there was nothing out there fulfilling that need. Mm. So uh, we carved it out. We hived it out from the consulting business as a separate business and and also made it available for external funding um, and have been building the business as a separate entity for the last two years.
1: That is so cool, man, such an interesting niche. I never knew that was a thing, even like.
2: Yeah, uh... <laughs> that's what a lot of people say. I never knew that that existed. That's yeah. exactly why we want to get the work out, the word
1: out. Wow. And My next question was going to be how you validated it, but obviously you're coming from that consulting background and mm. kind of like you've explained, you saw that there was a need there, but was there any moment where you felt like, you know what, I need to start a business for this, to solve this problem?
2: Yeah, it was, there was a moment. Okay. Um. We originally envisaged it as a part of the toolkit of the consulting business, Code Associates. As a natural part of any consulting business, you need a sort of measurement tool, a diagnostic. But there was a moment where I realized that fundamentally it's a technology solution. Hmm. And therefore, so what? Lots of things. So, so it needs significant investment, more investment than the consulting business was prepared to put into it. It needs, therefore, it needs outside funding, which we couldn't do when it was part of a consulting business with a with a partnership mm. ownership structure. Um, but also the. The culture, the economics, the processes, even the physical office location is completely different for a technology business than it is for a consulting business. And so I, I realized actually, and it was a learning process for me, that the only way that this was going to really fly was to be its own thing, mm. not a, a subset. And so for me, it's been fascinating. I worked for, in my early years, worked for the government. And then I worked for a very large international business with hundreds of thousands of people. I then worked for a smaller consultancy. Then I set up my own consultancy. So you can say I've got quite a lot of experience in business, but I've never run a technology business before. And so I started in my 50s. I'm not your, probably not your classic tech founder straight out of university or business school. Um, I have the advantages to that in the fact that I have really quite a broad and deep background in business. I have a good network as well for fundraising, and maybe we'll talk about that. Um, but it's a completely new experience. And I have a team who are very diverse, but, but mostly young. Mm. Um, and the dynamic of building a tech business and creating a buzz around it, both within the team, but also externally, that's a new thing. The, the consulting business has been built very gradually. Um, it's very much a relationship and a project-based business. And of course, uh, a SaaS business like culture 15 is completely different. It's, uh, it's really a sales business and. Um, and it's built upon making sure that you build a platform and a product that clients love, um, that they buy, and that they keep. It's really that simple. And so, so all the dynamics are completely different. So there was a validation of the need that came through the consulting business, but the validation of the standalone business was very much a startup story, hmm. a leap of faith, no money, um, begging, borrowing, and stealing people and office locations and uh, and ideas and trying to persuade early adopter clients to come on board, although we weren't really ready. All the classic stories you will hear from other founders as well.
1: So cool. So, so cool. I really like that. You've got that, um, you know, you've got that background and experience it helps and it? It, it makes things a little bit more easier, I should say, than uh, just uh, you know, when you're dealing with investors or when you haven't got that much of a background in there, that, that must be very helpful.
2: Yes. Uh, particularly having started a business before that well, yeah. the a lot of the things that i'm doing i'm not doing for the first time mm. so actually it's it's not that they're more or less difficult but they just stress me a bit less <laughs> but i think the big challenge with a lot of uh first-time founders is actually managing your emotional state oh. be, uh, over a long period of time because typically it takes time to build a business mm. um But most people fold not because it's the wrong idea, it's because they just can't deal with the uncertainty and the stress of it all. So I think that's helped a lot. Um, Also, the cycle has changed and and this won't be news to you or any of your listeners or or followers in your community. Over the last six to 12 months, there's been a fundamental shift within tech businesses away from money is cheap, uh, it's all about growth, you're getting money thrown at you, therefore you spend, 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 which really is, it's it's been a bit of a chimera that's been created by low interest rates, uh, the search for yields, and this growth uh, really started all the way back in the early noughties with Salesforce, um, but this growth of these enterprise SaaS businesses, it's been a a bit of a gold rush uh, and and people have um, not developed a sort of financial discipline uh, the understanding of running a real business or the the need to, to moderate costs uh, in line with revenue. Those disciplines have not been in practice for the last decade or so. So, But I come from that background. My first, when I left the military, my first job was in lighting manufacturing and it was an incredibly low margin business, low growth, low margin business. So it's all about cost discipline. And so I, I, I come from my corporate background with a broader perspective around business. And I think that really helps particularly now Mm. because I have got a young team come from other tech businesses saying, Oh, what about Charlie? We could do this. And we can do that. We could do this. And and it's all just opportunity. And, but you have to learn to say no, um, a, because you you need to focus, but B because it all, if it doesn't cost money, it costs time and attention. And all of those are limited resources. So I think in some ways it's helpful. And also I haven't established credibility in the space. Mm. I've been operating in culture and leadership for the last 10 years. Um, there is a natural client and supporter base in that, and actually investor base as well. And many of our early stage investors are people I have built up uh, relationships with over the time. Mm. So they're betting on me because they know me and they think that you no, know, it's it's a let's just say a less risky bet than others perhaps they were presented with. And I think all of that matters. So establishing a network, establishing a credibility in the space, understanding the market, I think matters. Mm. I think we're in love with the the teenager founder. Um, Sorry. Yeah. Uh, routine right yeah. we're in love with that model but hey the founder of mcdonald's was in his 50s when he started it um and there are lots more examples of it yeah. right so um yeah there is an advantage but also you have less energy right i i can't work 20 hours a day anymore so so i've got to be really selective my bees take my time right <laughs> so I, um so yeah there are trade-offs for
1: sure yeah. I think you hit you hit the nail on the head there because of the, the whole landscape has changed now. And I never really understood the whole, you know, the whole valuation thing. Like just they give you 10 million and now you're not worth a hundred million dollar company and you're not making any money. And somehow <laughs> the, the company is employing and growing and growing. I never, I never understood it. I, I am on the same uh, mm-hmm. uh, mindset as you in terms of having a business that actually makes money. That's what I know as business, anyway. But I think everything is changing, exactly as you said. I think uh, capital is now very expensive. Nobody's uh, giving giving up free money like that. So yeah, I think it gives you definitely an advantage going forward, anyway. You know, especially with the investors and all that. And uh,
2: I'm also uncomfortable in taking other people's money. Money, yeah. Um, I I just it just makes me uncomfortable, right. and I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, profit is back. Yeah. You know, it used to be all about revenue, right? Yeah. It didn't matter. I, I I saw one investor pitch recently where he was pitching for, you know, several million pounds, more pounds, obviously he needed it. Um, and one of the questions from the potential investors, so what's your run rate? What's your cash burn rate? Hmm. Well, I'm losing about a hundred thousand pounds a month at the moment. Uh, and there's, I think, that was fine twelve months ago. Yeah. I think now it's really not. Yeah. Profit is back, and and probably not before time. Right? There's a big adjustment happening in the in the financial markets.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a it's a, it's a better thing anyway than where we were. But yeah, speaking of investing and funding, obviously you you've talked about invest. Uh, the, you've hinted on your companies being uh, funded. Could you walk us through that? You you've said stuff about. You uh, having relationships or building relationships with people in you order know, to get there. But could you give us a general idea of how uh, Culture 15 is funded? Yeah.
2: So it went through three stages. Okay. Um, and it's, and I realize not everybody has this opportunity, but the consulting business that uh, I, I was running, where it was originally formed, obviously was the incubator. Hmm. And so it was the original concept, the original early versions of the model were all formed within the consulting business. And so the first phase was a sort of incubator phase within the Code Associates consulting business. And there was a certain sort of cash uh, cash line that Code Associates supplied Culture 15, even in the early stages of developing the tech platform, um, which we benefited from. So it really was a sort of a, a, an incubator. Um, That's translated into an equity holding. So that cash has been converted into equity when we went through the first proper fundraising round, or actually the most recent fundraising round. Um, But that was the first phase, an incubator phase. And you can use, if you have a a company like Code Associates do that, that's very helpful because it means that the cap table and the amount of uh, equity that you need to give away for that early stage funding is minimised. And this is the key. You want to, in the early stage for a business, business you actually it's in the earlier stages you're likely to give away the most equity Mm -hmm. and so you can very quickly as a founder end up with really quite a low level of equity personally um just to get the company off the ground i think that's really unhelpful because in the end you end up working like crazy for somebody else so i think unless you make it really big and then everybody cashes in so i so that was very helpful the first phase we had a very modest friends and family round Mm. in november december 2021 um which was the moment where we cut the financial connection with the consulting business we'd set the business up independently there was still some convertible loan notes that the consulting business was providing
0: mm.
2: but in order to to mark the financial independence we needed some cash needed to raise some cash so we did that through friends family and team members um we ended up with five individual investors Mm. who put enough money it was very modest um but and had a very modest valuation um but that helped us get the financial independence um and then 12 months later november last year 2022 we i went through a much what you would probably recognize as a proper funding round, Mm. where we raised uh about 10 times the original amount Mm. At a valuation of five times the original amount 12 months earlier. Um, and it was, I, I took the decision, and, and I can explain the reasons why, to approach individual investors, not mm. institutional investors. And and my rationale was I didn't feel we were sophisticated enough at that stage, mm. nor were we formed enough as a business to be able to sit in front of an a sophisticated institutional investor venture capital firm, uh, and credibly pitch for investment from them. I, I felt we were one cycle, maybe 12 to 18 months away from that.
0: Mm.
2: And I also, as I said before, I had the advantage of a, my own personal network where I had access to people who typically invest or are experienced, sophisticated investors themselves and had capital looking to deploy. So I approached 20 people, 10 said yes, uh, and we raised just more oh, wow. than 500,000 pounds. Um, which then has created, and we're right in the middle of this investment cycle now, which has meant that we've built out the team, particularly the sales and marketing side of the business, um, to really start generating the right sort of ARRs and revenue streams. So that by the time we then. Seek money the next time. And I think that will probably be first half of next year. Um, we are at that stage where we can credibly speak to institutional money venture capitalists, um and to be able to give a much more credible story. Mm. And of course, it to a certain degree, it's, it's making sure you find the money, with, um, the cheapest money you can. Mm. So money that's gonna support the valuation that you, you put on the business, but also, and therefore, uh, which translates into uh, giving up as little of the equity as possible at this stage in the business for the investments. And it's always a balance and tension in it. Um, but so far, so good on that one. That the pressure's now on us, right? We need to spend this fundraising round, proving that we've got something that has real growth potential, and and that's what we're right in the middle of at the moment.
1: That's so cool. That is really cool. I can imagine the amount of work that has gone in to getting you guys to this stage. It must be. Is that are you just? Is it just you, a CEO? Have you got like a co-founder?
2: The... Yeah, it's it, 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 and we could spend a whole hour talking about this. <laughs> My, the way I've approached it myself. Yeah. Is that it's me? I'm okay. it, it's and it's the way I did the consulting business as well. And I was thinking about it beforehand because I know you teed up this particular question with me beforehand, and I've been thinking about it. And I, I think some of it's personal, uh, some of it's a belief system, um, but some of it's quite pragmatic. Mm. I think starting a business is a, is a, an exercise in risk tolerance or risk mm-hmm. appetite. And it's on the bleeding edge where most people don't go or, or aren't comfortable going. Some people bring another co-founder along to make mm-hmm. them feel a bit more comfortable about the risk they think they're taking. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it is almost impossible to find someone who shares exactly the same risk appetite as you. Almost impossible. Therefore, the risk is you get into the journey and you then discover later misalignment, or you have a moment of crisis or a moment of truth and your car, your partner or your co-founder responds very differently to it. I wanted in both of the business I started, I wanted to have no internal distractions. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have <coughs> a really, really clear and focused ambition and purpose and, and, uh, uh, and mission that we are on. I think that best is best coming from one mind, not two or three or four. Um, And I wanted it to be all about execution. I actually think uh, starting a business successfully is all about execution. And execution comes from really, really clear direction. And then lack of distractions and lack of interference about on your way. So so I've always approached it with it really needs to be one person's vision if it's to have the best chance of working. And, And that's what I've done. It does. The downside, of course, is it's all on you. um but the other thing that i've always worked on and prided myself on is that i build really good teams really Mm. good teams and so that's my that's my ace card really i'm not particularly bright i'm comfortable with risk but i'm not particularly bright um but i know how to build teams and so and that's been always the thing that i've been able to build lasting success on And, and for it not all to be about me is is build great teams not easy um, and you have to be prepared to make the tough decisions as well as the easy ones about hiring people and bringing them on board but but it always pays back and if and if I need to go on holiday because I'm exhausted then if you've got a good team in place that doesn't matter um if I don't have a good team in place and I'm exhausted uh, it really matters because the whole enterprise is at risk so I yeah it's been just me and I and I've thought about this a lot and I so I've had no evidence to shake my belief that that's a better way to do it
1: that's, that's that's very interesting, very very interesting. Because of um, a lot, of, obviously, you you know, in this startup SaaS world, there's a lot of co-founding. Sometimes three, four co-founders working together, and yeah. you're, you know, you you're, you're going the uh, solo route. Very very interesting, very interesting. And speaking of that, if your team is your strength, what would be one advice you'd give to say somebody because looking for a co-founder to work with, it's kind of like finding a wife, <laughs> you know, it's, not, it's not the easiest yeah. thing to do. So not everybody yeah. can, <laughs> can find a, a good co-founder, but what would be your one tip to somebody that wants to go it alone like you?
2: Oh, who wants to go it alone? Yeah. Know thyself. Mm. Like the the Typically in tech businesses, and in fact, even investors like to see you've got a commercial person and you have a technical technical Mm. person and they like that sort of marriage of, of skills, recognizing that they're really quite different skill sets. Um, I think that's smart, Mm. but it makes it complicated. You do you absolutely to build a tech business, you absolutely need a series of skills and profiles. And so I guess to answer your question, I'm working through answering your question. In, in my business, there are there are four essential areas of mm. the business. not don't think about the CEO, there's just four basic areas of the business. There's the product, the mm. technical side. there's the marketing, everything from digital to physical to brand, whatever it may be. There is the sales engine and there is the client success.
0: Mm.
2: that's that's how I look at our business. There are four disciplines. And I think anybody starting on their own has got to know where they're going to play. Mm. and where they need to build mm. so i don't i have some experience building uh web-based platforms but i'm not a product technical person so the very first person i hired mm. was a product guy and yeah. i got really lucky um he's still with us um and he's been instrumental in how in getting to this stage his mm. name is Waheed. Um, it was a stretch role assignment for him, but he had a real vision, and he shared the vision, and he had a real appetite for for building something from an early stage. I was lucky that mm-hmm. I found him. The the point is, the answer to your question is: I think you have to be very clear what you need, and then work out where you're going to play and where you need help. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean to say, as a co-founder, I think it's it's not nearly as difficult as people imagine. To build those capabilities so therefore they think well i've got to before i start a business i've got to fill all those roles Mm -hmm. and they've got to be my co-founders my personal view is that's a really dangerous setup because everybody's going to have a slightly different vision uh they're going to have a different risk appetite as i talked about so i I, and you're going to spend an awful lot of your time aligning i -hmm. think better and maybe it's the egomaniac in me but but it's better to to have one vision and build a really strong team to execute it, who all are going to benefit if you're successful, right? So they should be incentivized with equity. Um, But fundamentally, I think the vision needs to be a singular vision. The execution is a team sport, and Mm. and that's my mental construct. Therefore, I don't think you need co-founders. You need to build a really strong team. team. So that's my philosophy.
1: I actually keen to that. I like that. The whole division is one, but the execution is where, you know, you now have have your team players. And This is where, I guess you as the captain of the team will now fill in everybody. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Interesting. Let's talk about the marketing now, which is my own there. I love marketing. So tell us, how is it going so far off? What I wanted to know actually is uh, who 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 is your target customer for this? We talked about it a little bit in the in in the beginning, but who exactly are you? Is your target audience for Culture Fifteen?
2: The potential audience is any organization anywhere in the world, which of course is ridiculously vague. Uh, it does articulate a very good opportunity for us, but there's a sweet spot, and so we typically look at organizations of to 400 people upwards, Mm. um, up to about 5,000 or so, 5 to Mm. 10,000, but also organizations that we talk about in terms of having some cultural maturity. Mm. So organizations that have never before talked about values or behaviors or culture don't measure anything at all. And the leadership team has no experience in talking about these things. They find culture 15 quite a tough concept to get on board because it actually demands a level of maturity in the leadership team and in the organization to make the most of it. So Mm. as well as size and complexity, and we like organizations with multiple offices and geographic spread, we also look at cultural maturity. So are they already maybe measuring engagement and they're looking for something more? Mm. Um, Does the leadership team really see it as their responsibility to manage the culture? They're just looking for a framework to help them do that. That's our sweet spot. Mm. So we've been particularly successful at the moment in organizations of 500 to 2,000 people, um, multi-geography or at least multi-office, mm. um, and ones that have been measuring engagement for a few years. And it kind of leaves them as faintly dissatisfied. Mm. And so they wanted something more. We, we often talk about engagement 2.0. So that's our sweet spot. Um, we did an analysis the other the other week. And we have users in 62 countries
0: mm, um,
2: wow. we have clients in six geographies wow. um and we actually work also through partners and this is part of the marketing point we also we go direct but we also have organizations like code associates the consulting business where it started that licenses culture 15 for use with their clients so essentially it's a partner model as well as a direct model and we have partners in the us in australia and the uk so so it's the geographic spread piece. We're not geographically constrained, as you would expect from a tech business. So that's our typical sweet spot. And we're, we're, the more we focus, and you'll be a marketeer, you'll know this. The more we identify where we really have a right to play and our sweet spot, the more we focus on it, and the more successful we become in it. So there's a real. Um, we're just tapping into now a real virtuous circle about really understanding our core market, and uh, and it's landing better and better. The more we get we get good at pitching to
1: that market. That is so cool. That is really, really cool. This I got so many questions about that. That's <laughs> so cool. Do you now that we're moving into a more remote world, I guess this is where your software could actually come into real handy. Like how do you would that would that also help bring that culture together as well?
2: Yeah, oh it's such a good question. This is such a live topic. It's a huge topic for yeah. organizations. Um we're getting into a more remote world. That's a contentious topic, right? We, we COVID taught us that working yeah. remotely can work. Post-COVID is, is posing some really difficult questions for organisations about how they set themselves up because the media coverage of we're all remote and hybrid's wonderful doesn't actually match the reality of most organisations, particularly large organisations. Most organisations, particularly now they're rationalising and making layoffs, are really starting to ask themselves some difficult questions about actually what it means. And there's a, the pendulum is swinging back for sure. Um, but, but your point, your question points to a really important point. So in the past culture in organizations used to be organic It used to be implicit. In other words, because we were all in the office, you would learn it at the water cooler. You would learn it by the informal interactions you've had with your managers. You'd learn it by watching people around the office. It was absorbed it was implicit culture just was learned and so that and junior people coming into the business would learn the way of doing things the way decisions are made um your approach to hierarchy how information flows around the organization now we're remote or hybrid that mechanism has been lost at least to a partial degree so a lot of organizations and and this is why i think culture 15 is right on the moment a lot of organisations are realising that they have to work harder at culture for it to actually be consistent or they to get what they want. It's no longer implicit and people will just pick it up. The old adage, a lot of leaders who've been in business, senior levels in business for a, a long time talk about, oh, you just know it when you see it, you <laughs> feel it, right?
0: Yeah.
2: That's no longer adequate yeah. because you no longer see it or feel it because people are remote and you no longer have those physical ties that bind people together. So a lot of organizations realizing they have to be more rigorous, more explicit, they have to spend more time on it, and they have to really become experts at managing culture in a deliberate way rather than a default way. Um, And that's where Culture15 really is aiming to to answer the question. So yes, it is a very good observation in the question.
1: Just one final question on that. Let's say a company, could you describe uh, this scenario, a company, before working with you and after working with you what does that look like
2: really interesting uh, and as i say we're we're, sort of, we're we're developing a real feel for our sweet spot at the moment yeah um and this year we've been a lot more deliberate about setting a culture 15 up as a management tool not just a survey platform mm. there are a lot of surveys platforms I we blame survey monkey right all organizations <laughs> are over survey. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a lot of platforms out there like Culture Amp and PCON, et cetera, which really maximize surveys. We've been a lot more deliberate in setting Culture15 up to be a management platform. So it is optimized for managers across the organization to take accountability for and have a tool that helps them manage culture. We see the role of leadership primarily to be to manage culture. Mm. Therefore, you have to equip the leaders to do that with something that tells them, you want your culture to be here today it's here and what are you doing to close the gap so it's it's a it's a classic from to management tool so organizations before they work with us typically manage culture informally anecdotally subjectively Um, they will not really be aligned about what they really mean when they talk about culture they have posters and mouse mats and mugs or whatever in terms of with values on it but people won't actually be aligned. And often we hear the complaint that, you know, we've got these values articulated, but the real behavior is really quite different. You get this really big gap. That's what we often find. And we, ha- we find leadership teams scratching their heads going, we know it's important, we recognize the gap, we, we see it being an issue, but we have no tools. We're not familiar, just as you said, I didn't know that existed. We have no tools to really do better at it so there's a sort of unmet need and the engagement measurement tools that they have um produce metrics but but there's a sort of sense particularly among leadership lesser with the hr community that it's measuring an output signal not an input so in other words we can't whatever we do doesn't really change it so it doesn't you know over time it just stays the same and it's very frustrating particularly if your management incentives are tied to them Well, i wouldn't say after we work with us because actually we aim to keep clients as a subscription service so once clients start our aim is that there's never a moment where it's after they've worked with us they they build culture 15 into their management practices and Hmm. tools but once they work with us that shift of alignment around what really they mean by culture, a very clear articulation of the target culture, which often doesn't exist. They've not really landed on what culture they really want in terms of behaviours. And and we make a very clear distinction that culture for us is Mm behaviours. Therefore, you can measure it. Culture is not intentions or values or um, uh, motivations. You can't experience someone's motivation. You can only experience their Mm behaviour. So culture, we think, exists as behaviours. So they're a lot more focused on actual behaviours. Leaders and managers across the organisation have a tool that allows them to actually manage deliberately and directly the culture in their area of the organisation. And they are starting to apply a tangible, rigorous metric system to culture in the same way they would to their operational or their financial metrics. So Mm -hmm. that's the sort of before and after It, it brings it it sort of brings it from being vague and below the surface of some water to being on the surface and tangible. That's fundamentally the change. But the last point I'd say is it it stops being solely an HR initiative
0: Mm.
2: um, and starts to become woven into the fabric of the business and the strategy Mm. of where it's going. And so it becomes a strategy enabler. So if we want to be... A high growth business in multiple geographies working seamlessly between departments and locations you need a set of behaviors that underpins that mm. so in other words it's a enabler for your strategy and your operating model it's not a sort of well-being and feel-good initiative that's owned mm. by hr that's the shift we often see and so whilst we look for organizations that have a certain level of cultural maturity the big shift that happens when you start using culture 15 is your cultural maturity steps up mm. Fundamentally,
1: you become a lot better at managing them. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you brought up HR, because I was I was thinking, yeah, this is probably an HR thing, or what do they call them? Chief people officer. I don't yeah. know if that's uh, those kind of people that will be interested in And in I software. Like, okay, that's that's very helpful. But Charlie, this has been a wonderful, wonderful chat. Into You've given us a lot of insight into culture, into your business, into bees. <laughs> We're gonna have to bring you, bring you back to talk some more about the bees, actually. Uh, as we come to the end of the chat, I always like to finish up with, uh, if you could share one tip for a new founder who's also working on a startup or you know, maybe a little bit behind you, what would uh, that tip be for them? One tip? Yeah. Oh, if you have two, why not? <laughs> I tell
2: you, so... you. One of the questions you asked me before was, so what were the main challenges and what, and, and how do you overcome them? And, and I synthesized it down to actually, there aren't challenges, there are dilemmas. Mm-hmm. So if you're building a tech business, your success, you will know your success depends upon building a superior technology product. But it is really easy to spend all your money on technology development uh, and go out of business because you run out of cash that's a dilemma um in the sales process you will also know that the key to b2b saas sales or any saas sales is a scalable sales engine in other words it needs to be automated you've got digital marketing all the sort of pay-per-click and the digital marketing marketing tools and processes all quite well publicized and you do need that But I found also you need to be pragmatic and you need to do the short-term, non-saleable, scalable sales activity. So you need to run events, you need to be networking. That's not scalable. I know that's not scalable, but boy, has it helped. Um, I think the life of a founder early on is a series of dilemmas. Um, And you have to be able, what was it? Was it Mark Twain or something that the, the the famous quote i always keep in mind is the 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 sign of a superior mind is the ability to hold two opposing thoughts in their head at any one time and not go mad <laughs> wow. i think i think that's my tip to a founder is develop the ability to hold two opposing thoughts in your maybe more than two but multiple opposing thoughts in your head and maintain them there <laughs> that uh, So that the whole essence of dilemma is a real challenge. So how do you go big on your product, but not, but have the ability to stamp on the brake if you need to? Mm. How do you build sales capability, but in the long term, but recognizing that short term tactical and practical also works and actually can help you hugely. Um, How do you build a team with real energy and accept that people will be paid less than they would like to be paid? Um, So you create this real sort of family and close-knit community, but also not be afraid to fire someone if you have to. Those are dilemmas, right? Those are personal opposing thoughts. So that would be the one thing I would say to a founder is be ready for that and embrace it. And I guess there is a part B, if I can sneak in a part B to the one tip, and it is a bit of a second tip, which is you've got to seek help. So Mm. particularly if you're a solo founder, and I've spent a lot of my effort and emphasis at building a network of community around me to give me advice and keep me honest. So I I mean, to, and and I, now this really is a second point, but the, the Stockdale paradox really interests me, which is how do you create, maintain an unshakable belief that your long-term vision is going to be successful whilst not being afraid to confront the brutal reality of your current situation and change your mind if you have to? so it's the old pivot right pivot's a dreadful word but 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 the idea of yeah I know where I'm going but you know what how I get there is going to be super flexible and you can only get that by having multiple inputs of people who are going to challenge you so create that network of challenge the network of support and uh, um, be ready to change your mind without it threatening your vision maybe that is still in the dilemma category you now how do you the dilemma of maintaining a rock solid belief that the vision is going to work Whilst being super flexible in the short term in how you get there and be ready to change your mind or even your business model. That is another dilemma. So maybe, yeah, it is one tip.
1: <laughs> it's a brilliant tip. It's a very, it, and it's very relevant to uh, a founders, you know, working on their startup. There's one thing that really stood out for me is where you said, you know, the, there's the scalable side of sales and then there's the short term one. I'm thinking, you know, as a, as a founder just starting up, you might want to focus on those uh, short term ones that where your budget uh, your resources allow. And then maybe when more money comes in, you Absolutely. jump into the scale. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I would. Okay. Yeah. I think we become the whole business. The problem with um, the founders, the challenge for founders, I should say, is that we spend a lot of our time selling the vision of what we're doing. And sometimes we can sell it to ourselves a bit too much. Mm. And the reality is the business. So I'd like, I think culture 15 can be, um, can have thousands of clients across hundreds of geographies in, in tens of languages. um, And we could have valuations in the hundreds of millions really in the next few years, very easily. But right now I need to solve a problem. But how do I onboard this client? It's being really tricky. How do I run payroll at the end of this month? How do I make sure I manage my cash really carefully in this cycle where it's difficult to fundraise um, and interest rates are going up? Um, you've got to act. The only t- the only space that action happens is in the here and now. Mm. And so, whilst you need to keep the vision, you ultimately need to be super practical about how you take each individual step. And so you win clients one at a time. If I say thousands of clients, that seems wonderful, but I can't onboard thousands of clients. I can only bring one on board at a time. And so I think you have to have that vision, but you've got to be so practical about doing it one at a time. So I, you've got to be present, not just mentally present, but present with your business that you really are dealing in the here and now. And whilst you might have the vision, you build a business one step at a time. So practical works.
1: That is brilliant, Charlie. You've been awesome and awesome, awesome. This has been very, very wonderful chat. Yeah. If any of our viewers would like to learn more about you or check out Culture15, maybe even try it. What's the best way for them to do it?
2: So I'll start with, uh, because I'm a salesman at heart, Um, Culture15, go to the website. we put a lot of effort into the website explaining what we do, but also giving you routes to contact the team. So the website's the place to go for the Culture15 inquiry. And we keep it up to date on a, well, on a daily basis. If you want to connect with me, LinkedIn is the best way to do it. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, reach out, send a message, uh, and uh, and have a chat. I'm, I'm, because of my own experience, I am really interested in mentoring and supporting other people who are on a, a founder journey because I know it's not easy. Um, and if people want to reach out for that type of help and support, happy to go They might not hear what they want to hear. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty unblinking um, in my feedback, um, but but I, I do want to help. So uh, yeah, people very happy if people reach out.
1: Brilliant! It's always helpful when other found, more experienced uh, founders are willing to help as well. So uh, anybody, reach out to Charlie. Thank you, Charlie, once again. It's been an absolute pleasure having you.
2: Thanks, Charlie. A real pleasure. And I hope it's useful for others to hear what we've talked about as well.